Hello, and welcome to another episode of Climbing on the Bookshelf. It's been a little while since I last put out an episode, which was back in August of last year. A couple of things happened, not allowing time to book in more chats, and a new job started in November. You all know how life gets in the way sometimes. But this year, I have a few people lined up and just need to fix a date to chat. So keep following the podcast and please be patient. I just want to say a huge thank you for your continued support and following. So please do rate and review my show as this helps new people find it. Thank you. This episode is a really special one as it concentrates on the golden age of Yosemite climbing. Yes, those years. I can't take any credit for the interview at all, but have chosen the parts I think you would all love to hear. This episode is part one, as I think there may be another two parts to the interview that I can release throughout this year, so listen out for those. I just want to say a huge thank you to the very kind people at the American Alpine Club Library for giving me access to this interview from their archive. So now, I'll just let you listen to this amazing interview that was recorded back in November 2015 with none other than Steve Roper. He is the main voice of the interview, but there are two others in the same room, one of which is Alan Steck, and the interviewer is Jim McCarthy. Hope you enjoy this trip down memory lane. First of all, how old are you now? Yeah, 74. That that young, huh? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay. What was your introduction to climbing? Well, my old man was a, a chemist down here in Emeryville, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and his boss was none other than Hervey Vosges, another famous Yosemite climber. And so Hervey Vosges in 1954, when I was 13, said, take the kid climbing, take the kid climbing sometime. And so I went to Indian Rock, and this is where I met Steck, Alan Steck, Indian Rock, about 1954. You were sort of the leader of some of those Sunday outings. And so I learned uh, to climb very slowly. I was only 13, so they wouldn't trust me to do anything. <laughs> so they made me tie knots behind my back because he could do it in the dark. And various things, and repelling, and it took me about three years before they trusted me enough to let me go to the valley with them. Mm-hmm. So in 1956, I did go to the valley and did a, a real shit climb called the East Face of Glacier Point. Nobody's ever done it again, I'm sure. <laughs> terrible, terrible route, way up my Iliwet Falls. Oh, okay. And uh, then the next year, 57, I started branching out on my own with some local friends. And by 58, I was doing uh, some significant climbs, and this every year got more sophisticated. Uh, until about 1959, I was climbing things like the Lost Arrow, Stetz route on Yosemite Point Buttress, the fourth ascent of your route on El Cap East Buttress, fourth ascent in Pearl Harbor Day, 1959. And then it went on from there. Who were your early climbing partners, Steve? Well, there was a fellow down, and still lives here in Berkeley, named Cray Ritter. He was a grad student at Cal. So he and I climbed a lot together in 57 and 58. And then we met Chuck Pratt, my God, at Indian Rock, probably in late 57. And so Cray Ritter and, and Pratt and I, in 58, went up to the valley for about three weeks. Climbed it like mad, first ascents and all sorts of 
very good climbs. Yeah, and then I climbed, of course, with uh, Leighton Core in 1960 a lot, Glenn Denny. Uh, Steg was a workaholic down there at the ski hut, so I rarely climbed he with... He had a job. He had a, a real job, imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> and meanwhile, I was going in and out of colleges, quitting, quitting when the season came along, so I only got about a year and a half of college. And uh, climbed with the Royal a lot, Royal Robbins and frost a little bit. Uh, Harding, only one route with Warren Harding over on Glacier Point Apron with Fred Becky, in fact. So Becky, Harding, and I did some stupid route over on the apron. Uh, so I've climbed with uh, many people. I've climbed even with McCarthy, the famous Jim McCarthy in the, in the Schwanguns. And that story is a very good one because I had, Steck and I had climbed the Salafay Wall, so in theory I was in good shape in 1966. But uh, then I didn't climb for four months, traveling with my then wife back east, and met up with McCarthy and Cor. Uh, and I said, for my first climb ever in the gunks, I want to do high exposure. He said, fine. And then the pastor takes me over to around a little corner and said, this is a start right here. <laughs> and you traverse left about 30 feet, uh, and then it just gets a little bit easier. And I said, shit, man, this is dead vertical, little tiny half-inch drips. Uh, and so I said, are you sure this is the route? It's like, shit, I've been here for a hundred times, you know, and this is the route. And it was called the Diratissima, it was five, nine, probably 10, 10A by now or something. It, it, you'd be surprised how the grade has ascended over yeah, the years. Yeah. So I almost got lost. Uh, there was a couple of fixed pitons there, and so I clipped into those barely. And then made it, and at the end of it, I was cursing. I said, this is not 5-6, you bastard. <laughs> so Cor, Cor was not saying much. Cor could have helped me, but he, he was playing along with the joke. Yeah. 1966, yeah. Right. Let's talk about pitons for a second. Um, <clears throat> when you started climbing, you probably were climbing, I, I suppose, with, with soft iron. Oh, yeah. Is that true? All European. And where did you, where did you guys get well, the stuff? From? The ski hut, which Steck was the manager of. Always carried soft pitons, cassins, stubais, I think. Right. Fritches, I think called fritches. Mm -hmm. All European, except for about 1956, along came uh, Hollybar, Colorado, yeah. and Jerry, Colorado. But nobody, nobody around. Well, yeah, there's a guy, Clocar, who lived in San Francisco, had a shop right by the ferry building. And he sold his stuff for about 20 cents each. Beautiful looking stuff, but still soft. Did you go there to his... Uh... No, I saw it a lot when I drove by it, because yeah. Clocar, yeah. Mm. Never met the man, but he made good pitons. What was your first uh, experience with uh, hard, uh, hard pitons? Um... Well, 1959, Chenard drove up, and in the back of his car, he opened up his trunk. We had barely met him. 1959, June, and uh, it was either then or a few months later, opened up his, uh, his, trunk, his trunk of his car, and there, in a box, was dozens of beautiful pitons. And he says, watch this. And he, he takes one out, and we go over to a boulder, and he just starts smashing it into an incipient crack, and by God, it went in. And he says, watch this. And he took it out, and it was untouched, absolutely untouched. <laughs> Little did we know, of course, it would ruined ruined the crate. There's still scars on little boulders in Camp 4. <laughs> but, but. Did 
59, yeah. Did Dick Long uh, produce some some knife blades? I have a recollection of oh, that. Oh, yeah. When was that, Steve? I'd say 59. Mm -hmm. uh, Chuck Wilson had already made some earlier ones, but Long was uh, 1959, I think. And they were good. They were about as good as uh, Wilt. He treated nicely. Were you, were you ever able to get a hold of any of Salate's pins? Uh, not. I didn't get them directly, but I've been given at least three. Now, Bob Swift gave me one. Mm -hmm. And a guy Salate's climbed with in 1951, a guy named Cliff Hopson. Well, when I was writing my book, Camp Four, I got in touch with Cliff Hopson somehow. And I said, by the way, do you have any Salate pitons? Just for the hell, but I ask. And he said, yeah, you want some? And so he said, mailed me up uh, two or three, but they were not the best kinds. They were verticals, uh, ugly things really, not, not the famous. No, the I, lost arrows. I do have one famous one that Bob Swift got, some, probably the lost arrow. A, a thing of beauty. I don't know what to do with it. I guess I'll give it to Golden probably, but... Well, we, we can always take yeah. a... Yeah. You know, that would have an honored place in the museum. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just have it in a drawer. I look at it about once a year. So, right. fondle it. I fondle it. And... Well, you were, you were climbing extensively back in, you know, in the late 50s. Um, at what level were you climbing by modern standards? Say in the late 50s, at, at what level were, oh, yeah. you, were, your, were your... My climbing? level leading was about 5'8". I was certainly not the best climber. I was maybe the fastest aid climber, absolutely. But there were a lot of people better free climbers than I. I was always scared a bit. And so I could follow 5'9", uh, but be scared to lead 5'9". But, uh, and then there was, of course, face climbing, which I was not very good at, but I loved cracks. Even though I was not very strong, I, I loved thin cracks. Hated the, of course, hated the five-inch kind that, yeah. that Pratt was so marvelous at. Uh, Steck and I one time went to Chingando, remember that day? Oh, God. Oh. So Pratt led the thing. This, uh, what's five, it was five, ten then. And it was uh, just this horrible start. And higher up, it got to about six inches wide. And Pratt led it flawlessly, of course. And then Steck walked over to the thing and couldn't get off the ground. I couldn't get off the ground. Couldn't get off the ground, literally. And so Pratt says, what's going on down there? And so I tied in, I thought, well, you know, I can, I got an upper blade, I can, I can struggle up it. And I got about two feet, <laughs> two feet. Pratt was up there a hundred feet and screaming and cursing at us because now he has you to get the iron out. He put in two or three pieces. So he had to somehow get back down. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I, I had exactly the same experience climbing with Chuck, huh. <laughs> where he, he got into this uh, wide uh, chip, uh, sort of corner, <clears throat> and it was so wide, he basically chimneyed the goddamn thing. God. And I couldn't, I was, I was sitting there with Tom Frost at the time. This was probably about 63, huh. 64 maybe, 64. I was watching him do this and I, I couldn't believe my eyes. You know, and he, he scampered up this goddamn thing, and I couldn't get off the ground. Oh. And, uh, and I, I must say that even Frost had the devil's oh. own time getting up, following uh, Chuck. And speaking of, speaking of Chuck, 
uh, I wanted to ask you if, if you share the opinion, my opinion, which is shared, I think, by Frost and by Royal also, that of that generation of climbers, it, it seems to me that Chuck was probably the best free climber that I ever that yeah. I ever came across, you know, in uh, of the yeah. American climbing group. Would would you share that? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Especially in cracks, he was a, yeah. Yeah. a world expert, maybe along with uh, Joe Brown and and Willans, who knows? But on face climbing, he was not not average, but he was you know good, but maybe not the best. On, on face climbing, but in cracks, unsurpassed. Who would you th consider the best face climber? Oh, Royal, probably. Uh, Royal and Frost. Not the Prowls of Slouch, uh, <laughs> that's for sure, but uh, he wasn't putting up five, ten uh, face climbs, I don't think. But he did so many superb crack climbs that yeah. his name will live forever just for that. Yeah, he was. He was unbelievably gifted. Oh, yeah. And a very good writer. Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, that was a great disappointment, be I mean, to me personally, because and when I first saw some of his writing work, I was so taken by it. I said, you know, God, yeah. can, you, can you give us more? Yeah, he never did, yeah. And he just... He wrote two or three main articles, yeah. and then a couple of little notes in the back of the journals. But yeah. he was a, you know... Coulda, woulda, shoulda. He could have been a pretty famous, you know. Um, well, his his famous quote was, "Was I, I don't want to. What was it? You know that that I do." Well, I don't. I was trying to get exactly. it in my mind just yeah. as you were getting there. Now, I don't want to photograph it. I yeah. don't want to talk about it. Yeah. I don't want to write about it. Yeah. I just, just want, want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. And he lived up. He lived up to he that credo. He did, you know, we had a marvelous climb together. Uh, Ribbon Falls. Ribbon Falls, yeah. he's portable. And he wrote a good, a good account of it. <clears throat> a very, very funny account. Where, what was, where was that published? On the back of the AAJ. In the, in the back of the AAJ. Yeah. But he talked about uh, Evans knocking, said Evans tried to, tried to destroy us by dropping a pack on us. Yeah. That kind of stuff. It was very humorous. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. You're, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the other great quote from Chuck Pratt, uh, which was, if I recall it correctly, something that ran something like, I can remember when sex was safe and climbing was dangerous. Oh, right. I think that was somebody else invented that, but Pratt talked about it like that. Also, Pratt, uh, one time we were out somewhere uh, to base of El Cap, I think, and uh, a, rat, a rattler was there. so. Uh, I picked up a stone to go kill it, and Pratt says, don't do that, don't do that. And he says, uh, I said, why not, man? He's right here at the base of the rope-up spot. And he said, and have every rattlesnake in the valley looking for me? That <laughs> 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 yeah, <it> was good. <laughs> uh, one of our last big leads on the ribbon port of line, was, uh, I was, maybe Evans was playing, and I was just, I was just bored out of my skull and was hammering the date into the wall. There was a crack there and Pratt was beside me. You know, for something else, something to do, you know. Long was way up ahead leading the guillotine pitch. And Pratt suddenly screams out into the void. I can live for a million years. 
and never understand why I'm here. Why am I? I mean, this is really screaming. Why am I here? Yeah, I said, I could have been dating secretaries down, down below, and I could be doing this and that. Why? Why? Yeah, I heard all about that. When did you begin to think about um, doing the history of Camp 4? Well, when I was, I was in the Army in Vietnam during most of 1965, so Stick and I were writing letters back and forth, and I wrote him and said, let's do a history. I, I said, you take the old guys, I'll take the new guys, and we'll write the, the history. And that was 1965. As I said in the book that finally came out 20 years later, I said uh, something on the order of, what if we had done it back then? When, you know, and then I listed a whole bunch of stuff, and you know, Sacker and Pratt hadn't done their incredible series of free climbing. Uh, El Cap had only been only about three routes on El Cap in 1965. What if we had done the book then? It would be a terrible book. It would have been a start, of course, but... Uh, so 20 more years, uh, when I did, when I finally wrote the thing by myself, like, I mean, my climbing had changed uh, irrevocably, just become popular, completely new equipment. Uh, people were having pull-up bars in Camp 4, stuff like that. And, Nobody was drinking wine anymore, they were just smoking grass. So everything, everything had changed in 20 years. So I'm glad we waited, actually. You didn't display, you were working, you're a working man, of course. You didn't display too much interest. Well, yeah, I right got, then, right then. Yeah, well, I, I, I told uh, the Seattle Mountaineers books to get at you to do that. Right, right. And finally right. they did, they nailed you for the, the contract. Uh -huh. I must tell you that I was very uh, flattered when I first got a look at your book, Camp Four, huh. that uh, you had so many quotes from me. Oh, I'd forgotten, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering yeah. how you got onto that, that stuff. Yeah. Made them up, probably, yeah. No, no. All your quotes were accurate, yeah. I assure you. Okay. Otherwise, I would have heard from you, I'm sure. <laughs> you probably would have. <laughs> um, are you, let me ask you a, a jumping, now, now I'm jumping ahead decades, but you of course remember the big dust-up when the National Park Service decided they were going to close Camp 4. And Tom stepped up to the plate on that one. Yep. And he hired Dick Duane. Right, right. Are you aware of the, uh, of the, of the significance of the book Camp 4? in our eventual victory? No, I guess not. Well, I'm going to tell you. Huh. Um, well, yeah, Duane was a very, very good legal tactician. He was an experienced trial lawyer. And, and of course, he was originally hired by Tom, and he really got the bit in his teeth. And he, um, he and I basically met at the beginning of all, this, all huh. the trouble. I came out... Uh, on behalf of the American Alpine Club, huh. and I met with the Albright and all the rest of those guys, and they looked over and looked over their plans, and I came to the conclusion that um, we were not going to be able to talk them out of it. So uh, I came I came back to Allison Osius was the president of the American Alpine Club at the time, and I, I recommended the American Alpine Club join the lawsuit. Huh. 
which uh, was a big step for the American Outlaw yeah, Club yeah. to actually do that, especially since there was a long history uh, with the, the Albright family. Hmm. And, you know, Grand Teton Climbers Ranch, for example, was right. the uh, Albright, the elder, uh, generated that thanks to Nick Clinch. But that's, uh, that's a, a point aside. Duane actually had the idea to uh, begin a camp. Very flattering, if that's true. Uh, and the most important man ever. And the next thing book. we yeah, knew, right. I mean, we also generated a campaign with the UIAA because we had good contacts with the leadership of the UIAA. And they were all of a sudden getting letters from Germany and France. All you guys. The, the book Camp 4. Uh, and I must thank you for that. Has a very uh, significant part of yeah. American climbing history. Huh. Yeah, I'd love to hear, just hear you talk about the book a little bit. Yeah. Well, uh, as I say, I had it in the back of my mind doing the history uh, for 20 years, or maybe 25 years, mm-hmm. and because I, I figured that I knew the place as well as anybody as far as the history. You know, I had a huge collection, uh, collection of Sierra Club bulletins, AAJs going back to 1955, and I've always been a good researcher. I know how to, I know how to do that kind of stuff, somehow, God knows how. <laughs> and uh, just the, the story of how it actually came to be, as Aztec implied, or not really implied, you, you, there was a guy named Gary Arce, uh, A-R-C-E. And he sent a proposal to do a book to the Mountaineers in Seattle. And Donna DeShazza, who was the head of that, contacted Steck and said, do you know this guy or what should you do it? And Steck wrote back and said, Roper should be the one to do it. And so Donna DeShazza emailed me or wrote me or whatever it was in those days and said, uh, would you like to read the manuscript of this guy? And so I read it. And I said, I didn't want to be arrogant, but I said, I can do a better job. And he was not there. So it's nothing personal about his, uh, his book. He had a lot of stuff in there, but wasn't terribly well written and was not personal. And so I, I wrote back and I gave her my opinion. And she said, why don't you do it? If you're such a smarty pants, like, you go ahead and do it. Uh, and so well, then, my God, within a week I had sent a proposal uh, and she said, go for it. And I got an amazing $9,000 advance. Ooh, wow. It's unbelievable. Any other book I've done, I've gotten maybe a 1000 or something. So I, I asked for a 15 I'm sure, but she said 9000 I said, oh, yeah, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> Correct. That's Had to pay income tax for the first time in my life. <laughs> 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 How, Describe Camp 4 to someone who's never been to Yosemite. Well, to describe the physical site of Camp 4 on a slope, on very, very close to Yosemite Lodge, which made life very easy for us for the bar and the cafeteria. And it was a couple acres of sloping ground, right, exactly at 4,000 feet. 4,000 elevation goes right through the middle of it. And tilted, and the lower part was flatter, and that's where the tourist would stay people in their trailers and stuff, because then the roads got pretty rough. 
in the upper part. There really weren't really roads. You'd sort of drive virtually anywhere you wanted in the old days. And so uh, you, if, to camp there, there were some tables scattered around, but you could just throw, put, your, put your tent anywhere. This is back in the 50s and 60s. And there were only 10 or 15 climbers usually in the, in the springtime. And the best part of Camp 4 is the boulders, including the world-famous Columbia boulder, which is the size of Steck's house, just about, and has a very famous boulder problem called Midnight Lightning. And so there were boulders to practice on uh, and places to more or less hide if the rangers were having one of their fits about overstaying our limits, 14-day <laughs> limits, you could go up behind Camp 4 uh, and the enormous talus field behind Camp 4. And there were sort of caves, talus caves. And so, you, you know, if the rangers were after us, we'd just go up there and spend three or four days and then sort of slink back down into the lower, the lower campground. But as I say, there are no, no tourists in the upper part. There are very few. And in the weekdays, back in the 50s and 60s, deserted in the upper part. Friday night, people would come in and almost, I almost got run over a few times by people just driving up, you know, probably drunk at midnight from the city <laughs> and almost running me over. And two kinds of trees, the incense cedars and the ponderosa pines, huge things, maybe uh, two or three feet in diameter. But one bad thing about it was it got a little bit dusty as the summer wore on. And then, of course, in the, in the winter it would snow or rain, and that wasn't good. But we all had tents of a sort. Uh, very rudimentary tents. I had a, a Sears Hillary tent for a couple of years there, not a mountain tent at all. Uh, but most people had tents, and we'd uh, steal mattresses from the Curry Company and put them inside our big tents and try to entice uh, women up there. Very little luck with that. It was quite a place, and then uh, lots of uh, music. Some people had tape decks and things. Classical music, basically, hard to believe. That wouldn't happen now. <laughs> uh, were you there when uh, the rangers made it? The, the, uh, the, you could only stay in Camp 4 if you had a pet. Oh, yeah. You yeah. Those days? Yeah. The, there was a big sign that said pets only. <laughs> then, so, what about people? Yeah, it was some, some crazy thing somebody thought up, some ranger thought up. pretty weird, yeah. Yeah. So, how would you describe? the significance of Camp 4 to the history of climbing to someone, to an outsider? Well, the hardest climbs uh, in, the, in the world were in Yosemite, and Camp 4 was the only place where people stayed, so it, has, it had huge historical significance as early as the 30s. The hardest climbs in America, probably. Uh, maybe the Schwangungs had some, a few, too. But So the hardest climbs in America in the, in the 40s, Lost Arrow Chimney, Steck's Great Route on Sentinel, uh, so it was famous even then, and then about 1966 is when the first foreigners came. Two Frenchmen came and climbed the nose in the spring of 66. And of course then they wrote about it in magazines back in Europe. And then uh, the British came over in late 66 or 67. Uh, we had guys like Willems, Dougal Haston came there, and the word just spread exponentially of course. And Camp 4 was always at the center because that's where people stayed. It's the only place. So it just spread. And then by the 70s, Japanese were coming over. And 
this became, it actually became too much for me. I hated it. Uh, just couldn't find a, a place to camp. I'd be camping five feet away from somebody else, no, no privacy. It's even worse now. I was up there about a year ago, and tents are just, my God. You know, they're two feet apart, yeah. hundred of them. Very expensive tents, too. Just, everybody must be rich now <laughs> compared to what we had. So, yeah, Camp Rose, it's the focus of Amer American or Western climbing. You had the Schwangungs and the Tetons later, but the uh, focus in, of California, obviously, was you know, everybody had to go to Yosemite. Simple as that. It's a small place, of course. The valley is only uh, seven square miles or less. And there are other campgrounds, but they don't, they don't have boulders, and they're spread out. Camp 4 was sort of in the center. You could walk to El Cap in half an hour yeah. uh, and go to the Yosemite Falls area in 10 minutes. So it was centrally located compared to the other campgrounds. Had the boulders. It was right at the base of the, of the was called the Camp 4 wall, right behind Camp 4. The huge tailless field. And the other campgrounds were just in forest, just a you know, very plain uh, forest campground, so of little uh, interest to us. And then there was bandit camping. Oh yeah, people... You find your little niche. Yeah. Somewhere and you just go there, you know. Yeah, people had little favorite places down by Ribbon Fall. There used to be a, a road that went in, not the manure pile, buttress road, that went to a, the manure pile yeah, from, right. the, from the stables. Uh, but down further, there was a road that went into some, some sort of lumber area. And it had a gate, but you could get around the gate. So you come up on a Friday night and say, let's just camp here for the, for the night, and, uh, instead of going to Crowded Camp 4. So yeah, lots of uh, illegal camping, for mm -hmm. sure. I didn't do too much of that. But. Could you tell us, you mentioned that the, the Brits were not the first uh, uh, <clears throat> Europeans to appear in, in, in the valley. Well, there are two. The, the two, Brits two. must have been very close to the, the beginning of the European visitors. I think, I think the two Frenchmen who came in in April of 66 uh, were uh, the first foreigners. And there were, hadn't been very many, if you want to call Colorado a foreign place, <laughs> why Leighton Corps came in for the first time in October of 1960. I unfortunately was the only one left in Camp 4 about that, and so he, he just grabbed me, <laughs> as only he could, as you well know, a very forceful fellow. And so we uh, did a couple of very good routes. Uh, north buttress of uh, Lower Cathedral, the third ascent of that. Uh, several very hard climbs in October. So he was the first really good climber to, from, to come from outside California, 1960. And then the New Yorkers came in about 1966, I think. Uh, uh, Probably Brea. before that, Steve. Maybe, yeah, okay. Oh yeah, of course. Because yeah. I climbed, uh, uh, Art Grant and I did a first ascent on North Dome in about 1962, yeah. So the Vulgarians the came out about 1962. Yeah. I don't know if you were with them. No, you, I... You were a working man too, of course. Yeah. I was a working person at that time, yes. <laughs> uh, Kelsey the, was a Bulgarian, wasn't he? Who, Kelsey? Joe? Yeah, yes. he's probably half, you know. He, oh yes, Joe he, was a... He came a little he late. Was the, the poet laureate of the Bulgarians. Yeah, Bulgarians, right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned uh, 
very briefly that you know you were a very fast nailer. Were you a faster nailer than Layton? I guess we were about you know nobody could be as fast as him. Maybe I, maybe I was second fastest in the in the Yosemite. Yeah, both of them. When we climbed together, my God, we went we went crazy just to, <laughs> just climbing unbelievably fast. Yeah. And we did the uh, third ascent of the nose of El Cap with Glenn Denny, who was quite the opposite, a very meticulous nailer. <laughs> so uh, Leighton and I would look at each other sometimes and say, God, why doesn't he get going there? <laughs> he was very safe and made good, good anchors. That was the important thing. But uh, Leighton and I were maybe were twice as fast as, as he was. <laughs> yeah. Leighton was so fast that uh, he would you know, climb over you if you're Blaine in slings. Uh, he would, uh, and, and had led a pitch in Blaine in slings. He's coming up very fast. And just climbs over you, just like uh, just using every part of your body as a foothold. And the head, my glasses would be coming off. Uh, God, this is unbelievable. So what I what I started doing when I led a pitch, I'd go up about another ten feet, put a couple of pins in, and put the rope through that. So he'd come up and he would just trash me going by, but at least he didn't, didn't linger there, and I could handle up hand him up the the iron and stuff. Getting, getting back to pitons, um, in your recollection, and you, I'm sure you have a very uh, intense recollection of, of this particular kind of history, who was the first person that, that started doing chromolybdenum knife blades? Well, it was not in the, not in the Tetons, it was down at Takeets, Southern California, Chuck Wilkes. He wrote an article called The Knife Blade Piton in the Sierra Club Bulletin about 1949 or 50, maybe. Mm -hmm. So, and he had little sketches of it. He was, a, he was a, an engineer of some sort, yeah. So, he had the nice little sketches of all little, uh, you know, sixteenth of an inch here and an eighth of an inch over here. Mm -hmm. So, that was about 1950. He was a professor at Caltech. Right, right. Yeah, he was a metallurgist. Miller just had yeah. So yeah, I don't know about the Tetons. I don't think any of the early Teton guys made their own gear, unlike Chenard, Wiltz, Jerry Galvis made Petons. Yep. Dolt, Bill Fuhrer and Dolt yep. made Petons, but I don't, I don't remember anybody. There was a guy in the Gunks, you'd know the name immediately, with that weird angle Peton, that weird shape. Yeah. Norton Smith or something? Norton Smith. Norton Smith, okay. Haven't thought of that for a while. Um, but I don't think anybody was making horizontals or anything back then. Not in the Schwangos. No, no. There's a kind of a, a long history of confrontation with the uh, with the Rangers uh, and the climbing community in general. When did that begin? These these these. It's actually a long history of confrontations. Yeah. But why don't you tell us a little bit about you know some of that history? to your recollection? Well, the ranger-climber relations were never good because we were having too much fun, I think. Uh, and uh, we're scruffy, scruffy-looking people. And when they saw us, they, we weren't, uh, we weren't, uh, they would never see us while we were climbing, naturally. And they'd only see us when we're in Camp 4, maybe drinking or uh, uh, having parties that lasted till 11 or 12 at night. Pissing off the tourist, of course. <laughs> so I remember as early as '58 that uh, rangers would come and break up parties, and uh, we would we would agree to breaking up the party, and the ranger would drive away, 
the party, of course, would continue just to show them. <laughs> but, uh, but and then after 15 minutes, we, we'd go stagger off to bed. So there was that, uh, the noise, and then the scruffiness. We, there were no showers. We, we stole showers from the lodge, nearby the lodge. We'd go in there at 10 at night sometimes, and nobody would be around. And we'd have the employees would give us keys occasionally, or else the doors would be open. Or you'd wait till somebody comes out, and you'd go dart, dart right in. <laughs> and so we, we were not exactly the cleanest people. We showered, you know, once, once or twice a week. But uh, smelly, scruffy, and uh, clothes that had uh, holes in the knees. And so then, uh, so the rangers, as I say, would see us in camp for parties, but also in the lodge. Uh, not really disturbing people, but people, tourists would be looking at us. A little oddly. Well, we had to sign out to go for a oh, yeah. Back. at the chief ranger's office. Oh yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're walking in with all our gear on. Yeah, clankety-clank. Yeah. Don't know why, but <laughs> yeah. maybe it's because we weren't parked there, so we were getting ready to go to climb somewhere. Yeah. And we had it all around us, you know, clanking our Yeah. <laughs> that used to just oh, yeah. drive them wild, you know. There is yeah. a certain history of petty larceny. Oh, yes, yes. Um, why don't you tell us, you know, what your recollection is of... Yeah. Well, we were, we were, very, we were very poor, and we, we prided ourselves on living on a dollar a day, but of course that was supplemented by stealing and shoplifting uh, from the store. And then what a horrible incident that the famous Frank Sacker and I endured was uh, he wanted to learn how to shoplift food. Uh, so, <laughs> so I was a past, past master at this. Those, uh, you know, we're talking about five dollars worth of meat or something. And so I, I went in there and with Frank, I said, I'd be glad to show you, you know, a couple tricks here. <laughs> so uh, I said, well, you, you put the steak in the bottom of the, there was no plastic bags in those days, it was paper bags. So you put the steak in the very bottom and then throw in about five, four pounds of potatoes. And then the guy would go weigh it and you'd get the steak for about 20 cents or something instead of three dollars. <laughs> So I did this, I, I said, okay, watch this now, and so I, I filled up the bag of potatoes, went up there very confidently to the cashier, and unbeknown to me, they had installed new scales, instead of the scales down sort of at counter level, they were, they were no, instead of being up higher, uh, they were down at counter level. And uh, so he puts them down fairly low, uh, and sees a little corner of the steak peering out or something. <laughs> Uh, and he just he just he looked at us and scowled at us and picked it out and said that's three twenty nine and he rings that up on the thing. He says don't ever come in the store again. <laughs> and so uh, we waited about three days before coming to this coming to the store at different hours or something when he wouldn't be there. This one cashier. So Sacker just went beat red. Uh, <laughs> just, uh, I probably did too. But then another embarrassing incident in my youth, my misspent youth. <laughs> I was uh, one month before my 21st birthday, and I'd inherited $2,100 from my grandfather, mm -hmm. a fortune. And so I was treating everybody at the bar. Consequently, I was only 20, and this big guy, I don't know if you remember, a, guy, a huge guy named Adrian, he was the chief bartender, uh, and he said, uh, are, you, are, you 20, are you 21? And I said, uh, yes, sir, I am. And luckily he didn't ask for my ID, but he said, I'm going to trust you when you say you're 21. Uh, you, you better be 21. I said, yes, sir, I am. So I, I still feel bad about that. But 
I was only a month away, for Christ's sake, so why couldn't he have made an exception? I said, I, so I spent most of the $2,100 in the bar buying the booze. I tried, I wanted to try everything, Rusty Nails, Brandy Alexanders, uh, daiquiris. And I'd buy rounds for, you know, six people at the table. Uh, so my 2100 lasted about three or four months. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'd start work. But this lad here, the stat, in, in on, it's easy to remember the date, January 1st, 1960s, the start of the new decade. Uh, I'd uh, gone to Steck and said, uh, I need a job. I just quit uh, Oakland City College, and I thought I'd better work. And so Steck hired me as the rental boy, ski rental boy. Uh, and so for all of January, February, March, and April, I handed out skis every Friday afternoon. So it was a full-time job. Uh, and so that went on for uh, about three or four years, and this, I got stuck back into climbing a bit, along with other people by the ski. I didn't open until 10, and so at 8 o'clock we'd get up and remember the cold days at Cragmont Rock oh, yes. and Indian Rock. We'd set up a rope and, and climb uh, between 8 and 9 o'clock, then go to work. So this arrangement of working in the winter lasted until I went in the Army, which was four days after JFK was shot. I was down at Fort Ord, basic training. Then went to Georgia and Vietnam, came back from Vietnam in late 65, and uh, Stack and I had been corresponding, as I mentioned, and so he hired me again. And in this story, maybe I shouldn't tell this story, but what the hell, uh, Bridwell was the ski repairman at the ski hut when I got out of the Army, and Bridwell was caught with about three pair of unmounted skis at midnight on University <laughs> Avenue in Berkeley, walking along with six skis, all naked skis. And a cop stopped him and said, what the hell, what are you doing? And arrested, arrested him, or cited him, or I guess arrested him. I think he was arrested. Arrested, and uh, his old man was an airline pilot who came to see George Rudolph, the owner of the hut. And something happened where Bidwell got off. But uh, when, the, when the cop says, what are, you, what are you doing with these skis? And Bridwell stupidly said, I'm going skiing. And these were unmounted skis <laughs> at midnight at University Avenue. <laughs> he apparently had hidden them. He did, he had, in the uh, backyard. And there's a backyard with an easy fence to get over. So he'd hidden them when he was working that day. He'd hidden them in the back. So he was going to sell them uh, to people and make some money. So I'm not sure we want this to be known. I guess the real one will last long, probably, so. Well. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I was hired within weeks of getting out of the Army as the ski repairman. Steck knew what to do. He'd been a ski repairman for, you know, 15 years, which is basically mounting skis, basically. And so I held that uh, for about five years. Every, every November 1st, I'd show up at the hut, and every April 1st, I would leave, clutching my, my meager pay. The bastard didn't pay me much. <laughs> at all, but um, I'd have maybe a thousand bucks saved up, and so that's how I lived, uh, basically, for about ten years, all the sixties, uh, and, and yeah, all the sixties, thanks to this man here. Could you go back to the the issue of uh, Teddy Larceny and tell us uh, what you recollect about the? Uh, 
the part that the Brit climbers, when they first came came into Yosemite, oh. played in, uh, say, stealing food and, and one thing and another from the curry company. Well, I was gone uh, for those two years in the army, and that's I, and then after that I sort of slowed down, so I didn't I don't know much about the valley after say sixty 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 nine or so. So I never met the Brits there, except for Mick Burke, the wonderful Mick Burke. Oh, yeah. Um, he was a wonderful fellow in Camp 4. We bouldered a lot together. Uh, but I don't remember him. I'm sure they did, Petty Larson, of course. But I was either not aware of it or I just didn't care. By this time, I wasn't doing that myself. So I sort of learned my lesson with that Sacker incident. <laughs> yeah. um, so, But I don't remember. the. I know the Brits had a reputation of of uh, petty larceny. Did you ever ever have much interaction with uh, Dougal Haston? No. Never met the guy, I think. No. Okay. No. I think he only made one visit, maybe. Climbed the south face of Watkins, I recall. Never met Quillins, either. I, I think these guys came when I was in the Army, I'm pretty sure, and, and they didn't do much of repeat visits. They were fairly poor guys. When did you first meet Al? Well, as I mentioned earlier, 1954, my old man uh, took me to Indian Rock mm -hmm. with Herbie Vosge. And I, well, I won't say it was the exact date, it was in, in the spring of 54. Uh, Stick would come out uh, along with Dave Brower, a famous guy, uh, uh, and Herbie Vosge, of course. And Dick Leonard. Dick Leonard, and the, oh, yeah. these are all Sierra Club sponsored uh, mm -hmm. uh, outings. Sierra Club rock climbing section. Rock climbing section. Mm -hmm. So every Sunday, or virtually every Sunday at one o'clock, we'd meet at one of the three Berkeley Rocks, or a wonderful place called Hunter's Hill up by Vallejo. You and I climbed that maybe 25 times. Right. A big old cliff about 150 feet high. And, 80 degrees, rotten rock and all that. Uh, there was a, a place in San Francisco called Miraloma Rocks, not a very nice place. Uh, Mickey's Beach, out by Stinson Beach. Yep. Uh, and, uh, uh, and a place called Pine Canyon out, out by Mount Diablo. So uh, every Sunday there would be a climb, or every other Sunday probably. And Stick was a leader occasionally, he'd show up for half an hour or so, and then uh, he had other things to do. He was raising a family at that very moment. Mm. Uh, we're talking 55 now, maybe. That's when, that's when Sarah was born. Sarah's 60 years old. His, one of his kids is 60. Mm. Gee, God almighty. <laughs> God. Um, I remember her, her when she was, well, uh, we can get to talking about a scent later, but she was running around the house, you know, as a, you know, an eight-year-old or whatever. Well, she would have been 10, 10 years old when we invented Ascent in this very room. Uh, so yeah, 1954 I met Stack. Didn't see too much of him from until 1960. Uh, and then as I say, he hired me. So for 10 full years I worked winters there except for the Army. Tell us about the um of how you came to conceive of Ascent. Well, that's a hard one. Steck and I argued slightly over 
the, uh, the way the Sierra Club handled it. Instead, mm-hmm. it I think Siri and Brower, uh, well, what I do know is right here in this very room that we're in, uh, one day in late 66, yeah, I'd say November of 66, uh, Steck and Joe Fitchin and I had been talking about a, a new magazine because the Sierra Club Bulletin, which is the, the record, the historical record for, you know, 75, 60 years, whatever, uh, was now uh, going to be a conservation magazine, not a climbing. Sierra Club had gone totally topsy-turvy, from, as they should have, of course, from about 1950 when they were a hiking, climbing organization. So only 7,000 members, mostly California. Uh, and 10 years later, uh, after Brower got a hold of the organization, 70,000 in a conservation organization who didn't care much about climbing anymore. They, 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 there was no need to. And so, so we, we looked at with horror about the end of the annual Sierra Club Bulletin, which stopped in 1963. And we said, well, we've got to have a repository for our first ascents. You, say you so, and I and Kelsey were here? No, Fitchin. Fitchin. Yeah, Fitchin. Okay. Yeah. And they said, well, during that fall, we were, you and I and Fitchin, were, Fitchin was going to grad school here or something. Uh, and we would be just casually talked with a lot of booze and dinners and stuff. We uh, talked about a thing, and someone probably Steck said, let's talk to the Sierra Club about this. And Dave Rower lived only about a mile from here, two miles. And somebody had the good idea, probably, probably Steck again, a good idea of bringing Brower here to look at slides well, back up, back of up. the Hummingbird in San Francisco. Oh, before the... Of the Sierra Club Publications Committee. Before the slideshow. Yeah. Okay, well, oh, I, yeah. Yeah, I don't know some of this stuff. You don't remember that. Uh, well, no, anyway. No. I wasn't there. Yeah, so I, I went to the Publications yeah. Committee meeting. Okay. Well, August Fougier. Was wasn't he? Probably, yeah. yeah. August Fougier. Had and August Fougier was Publications yeah. Chairman. And so I presented a case for uh, a new publication called Ascent. And a lot of discussion happened, you know, and, and Brower uh, was opposed to it yeah. at first. Well, I mean, during that whole meeting. Well, and yeah. well, let me just finish yeah, that yeah, meeting. Yeah, yeah. And Fruget and with the help of Fruget and Siri, they approved it. And then... Uh, Brower was worried that his turf was being Brower fucked over. Brower was probably yeah. afraid that he was losing yeah, control no. of, uh, mountaineering part, yeah. of the mountaineering part of the Sierra Club, which he was, of course, but it had to happen. So anyway, that's what happened there, and it was approved, and we went on from there. And Brower came to our first meeting here. Yeah, right here. And... Uh, yeah. We uh, we hadn't uh, decided on a cover. We wanted. He gave us a color cover of the of the book, didn't he? Well, the magazine. Magazine. There, I remember this very well because uh, there were only about eight of us in the room, and Steck was showing all of his Hummingbird Ridge climb mm-hmm. uh, slide slides. Mm-hmm. So this screen is right over here, and we're all standing here looking and ooing and eyeing at the pictures, uh, and. Brower all of a sudden just just doesn't yell, but loudly he says, "That's the cover. That's that'll be the cover. Uh, we'll do a full we'll do a full cover." 
And we got, we just, so we were, we were so, stuck down. Uh, uh, we were speechless. Fucking speechless. But more could we want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's how we got the cover on the uh, first issue of the set. But he, he insisted, he didn't have much to do with the design or anything, but he insisted that the first cover be a non-bled cover. Yeah. So it had these huge, stupid, uh, have this weird yeah, inch and a half white margins, as, as I have here. Yeah. And photographs. We would argue about this every time we met. It's like, you know, how can you do this? Because a fully bled picture is much more much imposing. Points. It's bigger and more beautiful. And then he also insisted on the typeface, which was called uh, Aragai or something weird, and Centaur. There were two typefaces uh, that he loved more than every, every, every one of his exhibit format books. Is that how it happened that we got that? Yeah, yeah, he, he insisted on that. And we kept that for four or five years. Uh, it was a very nice typeface, both the italics and the, the main, and the, the heads. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that, him, him you know, exclaiming, that's the cover. And it may not have been, it was one of the better pictures. I mean, you, we, you and I might have chosen a different one, I don't know. There, there was ones that have more cornices or something. Anyway, beautiful cover. <clears throat> and so we worked on it that winter, and I see, just looking at it yesterday, before I came here, I looked at the first issue to see, my wife was saying, tell, tell the boys there that who, who was associated with that first issue. So naturally I looked at the masthead and it was just you and me and Fitchin. I'm sure we had a lot of help from Pratt, uh, Glenn Denny, but they're not listed on the masthead. I, maybe they didn't have too much to do with it. I think you, you, put, you put together the main, the main uh, first issue, I think, the main stuff in there. Yeah. Instead, of course, I got the lead article for himself, naturally. Yeah, sure. That was a brilliant article, so why not? Uh, and then uh, and the, on the back, Ridge. yeah, mm-hmm. and the scent of Hummingbird Ridge. And then the, and the inside back cover, uh, there's the head that says, oh no, not another mountaineering journal. <laughs> uh, stretched all the way across the top of the, of the thing. And so the, Steck wrote this thing, he, he starts out by saying, that's what Tom Hornbein of Everest fame uh, said when he heard this, but he gave us the two dollars because we had, we had, uh, <laughs> Somehow send out, uh, how do we send out, the, oh, maybe in the, in the news here at Globe Bulletin, maybe there was a postcard kind of thing. I think there was, yeah. And it said send in $2 or, or pledge $2. Uh, and we'll see if this, uh, the Sierra Club said, we'll see what this will we'll come to. We'll try one issue here and see what, how it works. So uh, Hornerbein had sent in his $2. And I think we got about 700 people to send in $2 each. Uh, and so in July of 67, I, I have a, a picture of me taken on my mother's porch holding the day it came in the mail. Or I, we probably went down to, oh, we had a local printer here, a fabulous printer, Pacific Rota Printing. And this was a guy by, in, uh, Oakland. in Oakland, or Emeryville or Oakland, Oakland, I guess, and run by a guy named Harold Ireland who had invented some sort of Rota Printing technique. So we went down there and for the last couple of months of the first, before it came out, the last couple of months before it came out, we went down and talked to them about color balances. Well, they did the layout things. too for us, remember? That first one, I don't remember that, yeah, we later well, did it, yeah. So uh, we would go down there and, and in the very, very end, the last couple of weeks, 
watch the presses roll. And arrogantly, occasionally said, uh, a little too much. Uh, uh, we would ride the press, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. We'd be right there with the, the, the God the man. <laughs> and say, put a little more magenta maybe in there, as if we knew what we were talking about. <laughs> uh, That's great. <laughs> oh, those were great days. <laughs> so, about, I'd say the first four issues we did down here in Oakland or Emeryville uh, with those guys and got to know them pretty well. Uh, and then they, they had these giant sheets, you know, four by four of uh, proof sheets. And we still have, I still have some of those things. And you, you probably have one, someone kicking up on her, kicking around. Well, those big, the big uh, sheets, maybe so. Yeah. <clears throat> And so that was, uh, and then the Sierra Club did not want to do, uh, Brower uh, played with that first issue probably a bit, typeface and stuff, but he never never opened his mouth again. By 1969, of course, he was gone from the Sierra Club. He was fired in 69, so he wouldn't have had anything to do with it, but, so the club just uh, gave us a blank check, almost, almost literally. Uh, they paid Pacific Ruta Printing, uh, for the, the, the press run, yeah. uh, gave total control to us, uh, which uh, is rather amazing because we did, knew nothing about that kind of thing. We knew the written word. Uh, that was uh, that was always fun. Uh, stuff would come in the mail because Steck would always put uh, the address, which was the place where he was now working, Mountain Travel, which he started in 1969, I think, or earlier, earlier maybe, but yeah. 69. 69, yeah. And so that was at the back of the, in the back of the magazine, which was a magazine, later became much more of a, like a book. In the back of it, it said, send, send material to Medell Place in Oakland, right, very close to where I live, three minutes from where I now live. And uh, so people would send us stuff, of course, and uh, the quality was just, uh, just incredibly different. Uh, some brilliant stuff of Dave Roberts, Maybe a little bit later, but uh, some utterly brilliant stuff and some utter trash, which uh, uh, we very politely, one of us would get it, Fitchin or, or Steck or me would get get the thing and say, you, you, why don't you handle this guy? No, why don't you handle him? And, <laughs> you tell him. Yeah. And so, well, you had some good ideas in there, my lad, but uh, somehow it's not quite what we want. And, and keep trying, good luck, and bye-bye. And along came Drummond. Then Ed Drummond, the great British uh, climber and yep. author, that was a little bit later, probably what, five or six, four or five or six years later. Uh, well, yeah, hard to know. Uh, brilliant, uh, well, a controversial writer, one of our editors. By this time, the Sierra Club wanted the thing edited. And the first four or five issues, we, we were uh, very pleased to be uh, very good scholars and everything. And there are a few typos, there are very few. I was a fanatic. A very pedantic guy, and uh, I would check everything very carefully, read it over three or four times, get rid of every possible typo. Where Sierra Club decided to have editors go over our finished product. When was uh, yes. um, Drummond's big piece? Uh, oh, yeah, and, and what's her name? Uh, John Hart's girlfriend at the time. Uh, working as an editor of the club, Mary, Mary Ann, oh. Mary Ann Stewart, uh, looked it over and said, this, is, this thing is a piece of shit here, this is an Ed Drummond piece. He's got and, two 
Two metaphors in the same sentence. Two mixed metaphors. Two mixed metaphors. <laughs> in the same sentence. <laughs> he said, leave it. That's our boy Ed, you yeah, know. Yeah. And they yeah. did. They yeah. it. Well, this is when the thing became a book. Yeah. Are we talk, we're talking about yeah. 19... First issue was 48 pages, and maybe the next was 52. 1980 was the first book, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. And that was a real book of maybe 125 pages or something. Yeah. With hardcovers, eventually hardcovers, so it, it had this enormous well, uh, history. <laughs> okay, Ed Webster photograph probably. Uh, I went from a 48-page magazine selling for two dollars to after 13 issues, the last one about what 2000. 2000. Wasn't okay. So how many years is that? 33 years. Yeah, 33 years. 13 issues only, because we got lazy. Uh, and Climbing, the magazine called Climbing, started in 1970, and that was a piece of shit uh, for, for years, and it got better. Uh, Mountain, Mountain was so impressed with Ascent, apparently, that they started getting better. Uh, really glossy, beautiful stuff, Mountain. Uh, and so we, we started to, uh, people went other places to get their stuff published on a more routine basis. So. By the mid-70s, we were doing, it sort of happened that, well, let's don't do one this year, let's do a double issue, which we did, and then let's do a th three-year gap here, and then let's do a four-year gap. So it was very unprofessional in, in a way, but uh, too much competition, well, and we no, didn't have money to pay people. You can't produce a book every year. If you're well, doing a book, then you just have to do every four years, let's say. <laughs> okay, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, a book is... is well, a big undertaking. So in the last uh, issue, 19, oh no, 2000 you claim? Yeah, I think so. Right around yeah. So uh, Ed Webster uh, took over, took it over. We gave him the material. He took over the design. And for the first time, the AAC uh, was the publisher. And we were, uh, everybody was so poor that we had to get donations for the first time ever. So Chenard and the weird guy, David Swanson, and somebody else. David's oh. still around, by the way. Is he? I thought he's he still in prison, or no? He got he got sprung. Okay. Mm. He's he's living back east, uh, uh, in um, upstate New York. Uh -huh. He was in touch with me recently. Oh. Anyway, so they they gave money. Shenard Swanson, somebody else gave money, which was a little bit embarrassing. I mean, uh, and then Webster, we were not terribly pleased with his. Design, very cluttered design. Well, he, he yeah. took over the whole project and just didn't tell us what he was doing. And he, uh, well, he, we gave him all the material, but we, we gave know, him... He added stuff of his own. Yeah. He, instead of, you know, we, uh, we had yeah. David Harris working with us that time. And from Canada. Said, yeah. uh, okay, David, you're the poetry editor and you just take care of that aspect of it. And uh, what's... Uh, our poets. Uh, yeah, John Hart. John Hart had written a bunch of poetry and we sent it all to Harris and he gave it all. Yeah, he put to, it Instead of editing yeah. it and taking only maybe two poems, he gave he every. He took eight or something. He took eight poems and gave it to Webster who printed all of them. <laughs> so we did not like that thing, vowed never to do it again. It was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was totally out of our control. When the first one was totally in our control, on like ninety-eight percent in our control. The last one, two percent uh, in control. 
English guy's name who Ed Douglas. Ed Douglas, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He wrote a scathing, a scathing review of the last issue of the Sent. Uh-huh. Just on unbelievably, there. just the worst publication in the world. He said. <laughs> Jesus. And our names were still attached to it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, so we could have committed Harry, Car- Harry Carey, but we didn't. You know. That was a glorified end of the scent. Mm-hmm. Never again. <laughs> <laughs>